0: Courses and always smooth sailing. There's always going to be bumps and waves and things along the way, but you've just got to be determined to keep making progress and moving forward.
1: That was Mario Frioli, and this is the Running on Own podcast. Hey everyone, I'm your host Julia Hanlon, and thank you so much for tuning in to Running on OM. I know there's thousands of podcasts out there, and it means the world to me that you've taken the time, you're trusting me with your headspace and your heart space to bring you inspiring conversations with pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection, people I believe who have information and stories that can change your life. Today's guest, Mario Fraioli, is an author, coach, accomplished runner, and was the former senior editor at Competitor Magazine for six years. In this conversation, Mario explores what it means to stay the course in running and writing, why hard work and a competitive fire are essential in pursuing your life and career goals, but also why more isn't always better. This conversation is filled with some powerful stories— From an epic recount of Mario's most memorable race during his college career to his experiences coaching Cesar Lozano at the 2012 Olympics in London, Mario has a deep love of all things running. Mario also opens up about his battle with an eating disorder when he was a young post-collegiate athlete and offers some insight on how we can change eating disorder culture in endurance sports. Mario provides his perspective on doping in the sport of running and how we as spectators and athletes can make change. Yes, this conversation is definitely centered on running, but I believe that whether you're a runner or not, Mario's life experience and perspective is for everyone who has a passion, everyone who's willing to experience failure and ask the hard questions of themselves and others. If this conversation with Mario moves you, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram, and please consider sharing it with someone. Before we get into the episode, I want to share with all of you guys about something that I'm excited and a little bit scared about. I'm having Rue be 110% community supported through Patreon, which means I've transitioned out of the podcast sponsorship model right now, and I'm asking all of you, those who listen to Rue regularly and receive benefit from these conversations, to consider donating as little as $2 every month on Patreon, and in return, you get to be part of an intimate Rue community. Be the first to know who I plan to have in the podcast and submit your questions for me to ask them, have opportunities to be coached by me, and more. So visit patreon.com slash and know that any amount of support helps. A big thank you to all those who've already joined me on the Patreon journey. I'm so grateful. Okay, everyone, let's dig in together in today's conversation with Mario Fraioli. Fraioli sounds Italian. Yes. Are you Italian? I am Italian. Cool. Which side of your family is Italian?
0: My dad was born in Italy and moved here with my grandparents and my uncle in 1966. So he was 12 years old when he moved to the U.S. And um, that part of my family has been here ever since. And when my dad moved here, he didn't speak any English, um, nor did my grandparents. Uh, they had relatives here already that were settled in Massachusetts, and that's where they ended up settling Um for the same reasons that many people come to the United States, the opportunity to have a better life. So, yeah, my family. My my dad, um, that whole side of the family, is 100% Italian from Italy.
1: And your mom's family?
0: Uh, my mom's family, they are a blend of Irish, English, and I believe some Danish influence. Um, I'm not as well-versed on... The lineage on that side of the family, but her maiden name was Kerwin, and she came from a lineage of Kerwins and O'Toole's, so very much uh, an Irish influence and some English in there and uh, and some other stuff as well. But my mom was, you know, kind of pale skinned, freckled, red hair, and my dad's got the olive skin, dark hair, um, so very contrasting backgrounds, uh, with both of my, both of my parents. Yeah. And I end up, you know, kind of a Irish looking guy with an Italian name is what I ended up with. So a
1: little bit of a mutt. Yeah.
0: A little bit of a mutt.
1: Was anyone in your family an endurance athlete?
0: No, to my knowledge. Um, there were no notable athletes of any sort really in my family. My dad played sports through high school, baseball and, um, I know he boxed for a little bit and did that, but it was mostly recreational, not not anything that he was pursuing as um, anything other than an amateur athlete. Um, and I had, he has a cousin who lives in France who played some semi professional soccer at one point in his life. And I've met him, his name's Lorenzo. Um, I've met him a couple times before. And he actually took me on one of my first runs ever when we were visiting France as a family before I went to high school. So this was like 19, I think it was summer of 1996 or so. And he took me out on my first distance run. What did you think? I thought it was really slow. Um, He's, I mean, he was an older gentleman um, and just took me out on his jog around the lake. And I couldn't tell you what pace we were running. I just remember it feeling really slow to me and thinking, this is really boring. But that's what he did at that point of his life to keep in shape. But he had come from a like, semi-professional soccer background. I don't know much more about him than that, though.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love as like a teenage boy, you know, the distance running for many teenage boys is not exciting because there's no explosiveness to it or that kind of distance running, just that slogging wouldn't mm-hmm. be super exciting or dynamic Were what kind of athletes? what kind of sports did you play growing up?
0: I was a basketball player. Uh, That was my first love. It's still a love of mine, even though I don't play anymore. But I was all in on basketball from a young age. And I really wanted to play for the Boston Celtics. That was a goal of mine uh, growing up in New England was to play in the parquet floor of then the Boston Garden, then eventually Fleet Center, TD Bank North Garden. But I wanted to play for the Celtics. And I grew up Near Holy Cross College, and I went to a lot of Holy Cross College basketball games, and I knew a lot about their history. and um, Bob Cousy was one of their um, most distinguished basketball alumni. Um, Houdini of the hardwood played for the Celtics. I thought I could be the next Bob Cousy, and that was my that was sort of what drove me through elementary school and and even into high school. and And it was high school when I started. Running, but up until that point, I didn't really have any any interest in it. I just wanted to play basketball, and I played every day um, before school, after school. Slept with a basketball by my side. Always had one in my locker. I was dribbling it everywhere. Uh, I would watch Pistol Pete homework basketball videos, and I just completely immersed myself in it. Which is what I tend to do when I get into something, um, and that certainly later in life happened with running, but it started with basketball and that was my athletic background growing up. And I would go to camps and played AAU and, uh, really wanted to play in college. And I mean, unfortunately for me, genetics weren't really on my side. I haven't grown much since junior high. Uh, and there's not, not too many five foot, eight hundred and, you know, 40 pound point guards really making it in basketball. Um, but I thought that I thought that I could for a while, and um it was actually at a summer camp uh, while I was in junior high that a coach his name was Jim White, and he told me if I really wanted to have a great basketball season that I should run cross country uh, because that would help with my endurance and I just I just did whatever he told me to do, and that's how i started that's how I started running, but it all started with basketball, but it quickly once I started running it it quickly flipped.
1: yeah, and I love that because as you were saying you were kind of obsessive about it. And like, you just fell in love with the craft of it. You loved everything about it. Mm -hmm. It actually reminds me very much. My brother was the same way with basketball and is still kind of in it, (laughs) but, and then it transferred itself to running. So what was that turning point when running became the, like the love?
0: So I started running, um, well, I should rewind a little bit. I, I started at an all-boys high school in Massachusetts, St. John's High School, and they had a great basketball program, one of the best in the state, and it was really hard to make that team, and I actually didn't even make it my freshman year, and I was really frustrated. Um, I thought that I should have made it, but um, I didn't, and there were some political things going on there, and people who made the team that I was surprised made it, while others of us didn't, Uh, and I still played, you know, church league basketball and whatever I could, but... I really wanted to play for a high school team. So I transferred after my freshman year of high school um, to Auburn High School, which is the town where I grew up. And um, <laughs> for me, the, the main goal is to play basketball there. That's really the only reason that I, that I left. And my sophomore, so I, I started at Auburn as a sophomore. And my sophomore year, I made the JV basketball team and um, Auburn had a great team as well, and they were they were Division two, smaller school than St. John's, but they would go to the state tournament and they would play in the finals. And uh, they had a great point guard by the name of Kevin Reed. Uh, Kevin and Chris Reed were the two best players on the team, and I I really just wanted to be Kevin's backup. I'm like, if I could be Kevin's backup, then uh, you know I'm doing pretty well because he's one of the best players in the state. So I played basketball my sophomore year, and um, it was you know. I think it was that year, my first year cross-country. I ran spring track, actually, my sophomore year, Um, and there's nothing really notable about that, but I I joined the cross-country team going into my junior year at Coach White's insistence, and I didn't really train. I showed up at practice, and we didn't have much of a team. The coach would have us run two to three miles um, for practice, and then we would race usually twice a week, and I, I didn't care much for the training but I love to race and I did pretty well in our small league and um, would finish in the top you know three of most of the dual meets and we didn't go to many invitationals at all so I didn't really I didn't really know what else was out there and it was at the end of our my junior year um, I ran in the in the district race uh, and that determined who qualified for the state meet out of Central Massachusetts. And I think it was the top two or three teams would go and there was no way that our team was going to make it to the state meet. And then outside of the top few teams, I think it was the top five or so individuals um, outside of those teams earned a berth in the state meet. And I missed by one spot. I, I missed by one spot going to the state meet and I've always been a competitive person and that just really ate at me. And I knew how close I was. And I was in that first season of cross country, I tasted so much more success than I had tasted really in years of playing basketball, trying to kind of claw my way up the ladder. And um, that was the end of my cross country season. And I made the decision that year, my junior year, rather than going out for the varsity basketball team, that I would run indoor track. Um, So I, I joined the indoor track team that winter. And from then on, I was I was all running all the time, and just with consistency, I got a lot better, and the summer before my senior year, I um, I met a few people, uh, I met a guy named Bill Gadare, who was very instrumental in my my running career, and he was the coach for um, the Central Mass Striders, and they had, uh, they had weekly workouts throughout the summer, and he told me if I wanted to have a good cross-country season in the fall, that I had to run in the summer, so I think I ran about 30 or so miles a week that summer and I would go to his track workouts and I was a completely different runner that fall and I was doing a lot better in our league meets and I think I won most of our league meets that fall and it was still a real sort of false sense of security because our league was really small but I thought I was the man and I was telling people I'm going to win the state championship um, which is pretty bold for a kid who didn't go the year before but I had that kind of confidence my senior year just because of the training I had done and uh, and the way that I was winning races. And I remember I convinced, we still didn't have much of a team, but I convinced our coach to let me run the McIntyre Invitational at Franklin Park. And it was a pretty big meet for Massachusetts high schoolers. And I got into the Invitational race and, um, I was used to winning my races from the start. I would just take the lead and not let go of it. And that was what I intended to do at McIntyre. And, Unfortunately for me, there was a gentleman in the race by the name of Said Ahmed, who eventually ran at Arkansas, but I didn't know who he was at the time. I didn't care. Um, we took off, and I remember going through the mile at Franklin Park in just under 440, which was a PR for me. Uh, and this is 5K.
1: And you have the huge hill in Franklin Park ahead of you. Yeah,
0: we hadn't hit the hill yet. And I'd never raced at Franklin Park so I had no idea what I was in for. Uh, long story short, by, by two miles, I had fallen off quite a bit and i finished the race in just under 18 minutes i think like maybe 1758 or 1759 and i struggled home i mean i really struggled home i learned uh i learned a big lesson in humility that day and in pacing and in respecting your competition um but that was a it was a good eye opener for me it kind of knocked me down a few notches and let me know where i stood in the world of Massachusetts high school running in 19 let's say that was 1999 I guess Um, but it was a good motivator for me and it made me train even harder and uh, I still had big goals at the state meet and um, and I finally did qualify I think I was third at our district race and um, ultimately finished seventh at the state meet in at Northfield Mountain my senior year which was a You know, looking back, really proud of that because it was a nice improvement from the year before, but I was just so fiery and competitive that I think I was probably on some level I was really happy, but on another level, I was really pissed that I didn't win.
1: Where do you think that competitive fire was sourced from?
0: That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with my dad and my dad's side of the family, um, they came here, you know, from Italy and really had to work to better their lives. And that work ethic was instilled in me from a really young age. Um, and my dad and my grandfather, um, it's my dad's dad. They always, I remember instilled in me from the time I was a young kid that if you ever, if you ever want something, you've got to work for it. No one's going to give it to you. Uh, and I, you know, I, I still, you know, I still embrace that to this day. Um, but I just, I don't know. I just always, I've always been someone who, um, has a hard time giving less than his best. And if I give my, give less than my best at something, um, it really bothers me. And I've, I've certainly mellowed a bit over, over the years. I realize that, you know, outcomes are largely out of your control as a, you know, as a 17-year-old high school kid, you don't. You have a lot of high school kids have a hard time wrapping their head around that. I certainly did. Um, I always thought if I worked harder, then I should win. Uh, and when I didn't win, I was upset and made me want to work even harder. and And that can be a good thing, and it can also send you down a spiral. Um, thankfully, I took me a while, but I eventually sort of found that balance. But I think, you know, I think it all started you know, from the work ethic that my dad and my grandfather instilled in me from the time I was a young kid and that if I, you know, if I really wanted to do anything worthwhile or special that I, you know, I I had to work for it and I had to work harder than everybody else. And I think, um, you know, for me anyway, I think my competitiveness sort of spawned from that. I felt that if I worked harder than everyone else then, you know, I should beat them in a race or I should win the game or whatever it happened to be. So, you know, I was never someone especially as a high schooler um, and, and certainly into college, as my teammates could tell you, I, I did not take losing very well. Um, I've gotten a lot better about that and something I preach with my own athletes that I coach today. Um, but it, it took a while for me to really um, sort of mellow out and, and become okay with uh, not winning, even though I tried my best to get there.
1: Yeah. And I think, well, what's interesting about running is that running is a sport that really lends itself to the hard work and to the discipline totally. and to that competitive fire that's inside of you. Totally. Because it's like, you can put in more minutes, you can put in more miles, you can do all the little things. like, And that's what's, I feel like, a really tricky thing with running right? that can serve you and also... You can be served. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, totally. You can. It, it's really easy to go over the edge, and it's a lot easier for me to see that now and sort of be objective about it with people that I coach than I could when I was self-coached or um, I was analyzing myself. Um, I see it so much now with the athletes I work with that think, well, if if this got me so far if i do this much more i'm going to get this much further and as you said it that that can certainly work but it doesn't always work um and usually for most people they find out the hard way that um more and faster isn't always better or it is to a point and then you've got to you've got to adjust some things
1: yeah and in college i read that you were an all-american and at Stonehill. Yep. When you look at your college career, can you take me to one race that really stands out as one that was really memorable to you, whether it was a loss or a win that you still think about today?
0: There were two actually. Um, One was a win, one was a loss. And I think the best race I've ever run was my senior year at Stonehill, um, our regional championship in cross country. We, I had qualified for nationals twice as an individual uh as once as a sophomore and once as a junior and we'd never made it as a team never in school history um and actually when i started at stonehill the program was one of the laughing stocks of new england i remember my freshman year we finished as a team we finished next to last at the all new england championships in cross country i think we beat fitchburg state uh, which was a division 3 school but this is a race where they combine all division 1, 2 II, and 3 schools and just, them, in it yeah, and just let them Yeah, and just let have at it. And um and we were next to last. It was not very flattering and I think I was our top finisher and I was 106th, but you know, we we really wanted to qualify for the division 2 nationals and my freshman year we couldn't even think about that. My sophomore year we still had no right to think about it. By my junior year, we were in our region in division 2. We were one of the top four teams, so we were in contention, but we still just didn't have the depth to do it as a team. And um, my senior year, uh, the regional race, which qualifies the teams for nationals, we knew that if we executed well, we would have – we would have a really good shot to go, um, to the national championship for the first time. We knew that UMass Lowell, which was the number one team in the region and had been for quite some time we're, they, they were, they were going to be hard to beat, but we thought we could get that second slot. And in order to do that, everyone had to have the best race that they could have. And for me, I, I really wanted to win that race. Um, my last regional championship at Stonehill. And I knew it was going to be hard. Um, There's some very good runners in our region, all Americans from the year before. Um, UMass Lowell had two really good runners in Nate Jenkins and Pat Morass. And um, they, you know, they didn't want Stonehill disrupting their nationals plans either. So um, they weren't going to, you know, they weren't just going to let us have it easy. Um, But that race started and Uh, there was a big pack of us through two miles and then Nate and Pat at two miles almost as if on command just took off and they threw in a really hard surge and gapped the rest of the field and all of a sudden, you know, I'm in no man's land in third place. But, you know, I'm thinking about my team and I'm thinking about trying to win the race. And at that point in my career, I was I, I really just want our team to go to nationals for the first time so i was like okay well you know if you hold this spot you know you're going to lose those two spots to Lowell, but this will be a good result for for the team you know don't don't do anything silly um but i just you know i just kept competing and kept trying to claw my way closer and i remember right around the five mile mark i saw pat morass and he had you know he was running in second and i was like oh he's within you know he's within striking distance and uh, I caught him within a quarter mile and I just got the biggest rush of adrenaline in the world. And I was like, "Wow! I just picked up a spot on UMass Lowell and I'm one spot closer to winning this race. And I just, and I've never felt this way since as far as I can remember, but I just started running like I've never ran before. And, um, I didn't know where Nate Jenkins was. I knew he was somewhere ahead of me, but I knew he was the only one, and I was just running as hard as I could, and then we pulled onto the field at Franklin Park, and I think there's about 600 yards to go And once you get on the field and go down this little hill, and then you've got to go around a couple backstops to the finish line, and I saw Nate was struggling, and I was charging really hard, and everyone around the field could see that I was closing on him, and it was going to be an exciting finish, and um, I'm getting closer and closer. And and I thought, like, I'm going to win the regional championship. I'm like, this is going to be a dream come true. And unfortunately, I ran out of real estate. But I, I finished two seconds behind Nate and still my 10K PR. He ran 30.55 and I ran 30.57. Um, on so a he, cross-country on course. On a cross-country course. And he was... Um, so he won the regional title and well-deserved. He ran a great race. Um, it's still the best race I think I've ever run um, just because I didn't quit on myself. And, you know, I was trying to place as high as I could for my team. And, you know, I crossed the finish line, and I was, you know, bummed that I that I didn't catch Nate and didn't win, but I knew that it was, you know, a good result for our team. And um, I remember looking behind me and seeing, you know, a wave of purple shirts coming in. We were, we were purple, black, and white. And UMass and Lowell was wearing white that day, and it was just like purple, white, purple, white, purple, white. And I was like, well, I don't think we won, but I'm pretty sure we're going to go to nationals now. And, and we did. We qualified for the national title. So that race is um, always memorable to me just for the way that I felt, you know, that kind of that last mile, mile and a quarter uh, when I thought I'd resign myself to third place. And then all of a sudden, you know, with a quarter mile to go. I'm in the hunt for the win. Um, and it was just really exciting. And I just remember how I felt and, and it was an amazing feeling And to qualify for, you know, nationals as a team for the first time, um, given where we were as, uh, as freshmen, um, it was just a really remarkable turnaround and something I'll always be proud of. So that one, that one stands out the most. And then, you know, on a, on a personal level, I remember, um, our first, my first ever race in college, we ran the, um, Shacklet Invitational at St. Anselm in New Hampshire and we had a pretty big freshman class that year and again we weren't a great team and it was early season we're up going up there on the bus and you know all of us freshmen who had just met two weeks before uh, we're you know we're all sitting in the back of the bus wondering how we're going to do in our first 8k race because we're all used to running 5k from high school and you know now it's you know now it's a whole two miles longer and um what's that going to be like and people were nervous and we're going around be like oh, i want to break 30 minutes or oh, i want to break 29 minutes um hope i can run six minute miles and you know it became my turn and i was like i want to win and like you're out of your freaking mind like you know it's a college race and whatever and i was like i don't care i'm like i want to win and and i just did what i had always done i went out and i ran to win from the start. And I did. And, um, and I just remember that being a really incredible feeling. I was like, I was like, I think I, I'm like, I think I made the right choice by, you know, coming to Stonehill and sticking with running. And it just sort of like validated a lot of the decisions I had made in high school to stick with running and, um, pursue that rather than, you know, stay with basketball. I was like, you know, if I keep working at this, I can keep improving. And if I keep improving, I, I think I can do pretty well. And I don't know, where that would take me, but I, I was always kind of dreaming big from, I think, the time that I, I started, and that was just kind of a huge validation for me as an athlete, um, that I could be, you know, that I could be somebody in the sport if, you know, if I worked hard enough.
1: Yeah, and I, I think... I think it's so cool that as a freshman, you had so much confidence. And as we talked about, you know, there's that competitive fire in you, but like just a deep belief in yourself and that like really anything is possible. Um, I read a really powerful article you wrote on competitor about graduating after college Mm -hmm. and pursuing the Olympic trials marathon dream. Totally. And you were speaking about how kind of you were riding that fine line where you were taking running to an unhealthy place. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me where that transition, like, were the seeds of that planted your senior year of college? Or how did it get to that point where it was no longer, let's say, like, I don't know. No longer it sounded like it was you had a healthy relationship to it.
0: Yeah, well, I should start by saying I had a great coach in college. Um, Karen Bowen was way more than a coach to me. She was almost, she was like a second mother to me in a lot of ways. Um, but as a coach, she did a great job of knowing what I had done in high school in terms of training and really bringing me along gradually and making sure that I stayed healthy and I didn't get injured. And minus kind of a freak incident at Penn Relays, my senior year on the track, you know, where I sort of got spiked and went down and injured myself in that in that way. Um, I never had any injuries in college from overuse or overtraining or doing dumb things because Coach Bowen always made sure that I was I was doing what I needed to do, but never going over the edge. And, yeah. and I had a great collegiate career and a great senior year, and I got better every year and um, improved so much from the type of runner that I was when I came in in high school. And, again, I think it was just sort of, you know, at 20 years old, 21, around the time when I was graduating – you know, sort of like when I was in high school, I thought I knew it all as well. And I was like, well, yeah, I worked hard here, but, you know, coach definitely held me back. And, you know, once I leave here, um, she won't be coaching me anymore and I can coach myself and I don't have to hold myself back. And I was like, if I don't hold myself back, I know I can get a lot better. And, you know, I'd be, I was an all American in cross country and, um, I'd qualified for nationals on the track and I'd, you know, I'd run 1439 for 5,000 and, I'd broken 410 for the mile, and I knew that I was kind of on the cusp of um, that's that sort of, like, second-tier pro who could try to make it. I looked at, like, the Hanson's Brooks project and, like, Zap Fitness and some of these groups, and, you know, they were letting in uh, 14-minute 5K runners at the time and 29-minute 10K runners. And I wasn't there yet, but I, I, I thought that I could get there you know, in six months, um, I just needed to train a lot harder. So after I graduated and I was on my own, um, that became my sole focus was try to, try to get into one of these groups and qualify for the Olympic trials. And, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, I could get myself there and, and I just made a lot of poor decisions and I, I really did some not so nice things to my body. And, uh, trained like an idiot and, and I, I suffered mightily for it. I was injured, um, some pretty major injuries. I've, I've had three stress fractures, two in my sacrum, one in my pubic symphysis. And this happened over the course of a few years. Um, but I had lost that consistency, which I had all through college, which I think was sort of the secret sauce to my continual improvement. And, um, it really taught me the value of good coaching. I knew I had a good coach in college and I was thankful for everything that she did for me. Um, I wasn't really thankful for the fact that at the time that she had held me back a little bit. And um, once I suffered those injuries and I lost that consistency and I couldn't train and when you can't train, you can't improve. And um, you're you're the fittest guy on the sidelines. Like I realized the value of good coaching and um How important that is for holding athletes back, and there are some athletes who are a lot better at that than others reading their body and knowing when they need to back off i w- I was not certainly at that age um, and it just you know in retrospect helped me appreciate the guidance that I had through college and and how important that was for you know my development um, but you know I have no one to blame for you know my injuries but myself and you know, I went, I can tend to be pretty extreme with things sometimes. So it went from, okay, well, if I ran at my peak in college, 90 to a hundred miles a week, and I, you know, was an all American and ran fast track times. If I run a hundred to 120 miles a week, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be that much better. Um, you know, if I was running my interval workouts at, you know, repeat miles at, five-minute pace, if I'm running them at 445 pace, that means I'm going to be so much better. Um, you know, I, I started overanalyzing every every little thing about my training, which, I mean, my training was, looking back, it was great, but I was always like, okay, well, it was what we were saying earlier. If if this was good enough, more is going to be better. If this was fast enough then faster is going to be better. Um, and that certainly wasn't the case. And I looked at myself and I was like, okay, well, you know, I was five feet, eight inches and I raced at 140 pounds or so. I'm like, well, you know, these guys who are running 13, low 13 minutes for 5,000 and, 28 minutes for 10,000 and making us teams they're five eight they weigh 125 pounds or 130 pounds i'm like i need to be more like them um so i i got caught in this really bad downward spiral spiral of you know trying to trying to get as light as possible because i thought that would help me get faster um and again it wasn't I didn't take a safe approach to it and it wasn't a gradual thing. It was just like all in and restricting calories and trying to train hard and, um, just a lot of dumb decisions as a, you know, 20, what was I, 21, 22 years old. Um, and you can get away with it for a little while. I mean, I had, you know, after college I had run, I actually moved out to Oregon for a little bit, uh, in Eugene to join a team out there, um, team Eugene Puma. And, it was just a ill-advised decision. I went out there not knowing anyone, having no money, having no job, not having the running resume to really attract sponsorship. And, you know, I was home within two months and joined the Boston Athletic Association. They had a great racing team and um, started training with some of those guys and uh, did that for two seasons and then switched clubs to New Balance Boston. And I, and I had some good, looking back, I had some good races and, you know, sort of that, mentality I had when I was younger and I still had it as a, my first few years at post collegiate, um, I was never running fast enough. I always felt like I should be better than I was for the work that I was putting in. And, um, I was just really hard on myself and, um, you know, running lost some of its enjoyment for me. It became more of a job, which wasn't fun. Um, you know, I started obsessing about weight and getting, you know, more focused on, all right, how low can I push the numbers on the scale as opposed to the numbers on the clock and counting calories. And, you know, it was, it was really a pretty dark time for me. And it wasn't until, it wasn't even the first time I was injured or the second time. It wasn't really until like my third stress fracture of my pubic symphysis where I had to look myself in the mirror and say, you've got no one to blame for this but yourself um, and the decisions that you made. And, you don't have a healthy relationship with yourself right now. You don't have a healthy relationship with running. Um, And I just, I stopped for a while. Um, You know, my first two injuries, I was like, okay, well, this is just because I'm training hard. So I've got to cross train even harder so that I can come back and not lose anything. And I mean, I, you know, it is possible to overtrain yourself cross training. I definitely did it. Um, But at the same time, it wasn't fun. And, um, you know, I just felt like, this is all I got is, is running. And I was determined to really kind of make a, you know, make a go of it as a professional or semi-professional. And I just never let that go for, you know, a a few years. And, um, the end result was just a really unhealthy relationship with running. But when I, you know, my, I lost my mom in 2008 to a brain aneurysm and running became a little bit of a little bit more of a coping mechanism for me than, um, you know, than, than an obsession, but I still didn't have a good relationship with it. And that's when I got my pubic symphysis stress fracture it was, was not long after my mom passed away. And, um, and I just, I just stepped away for a bit. I, I didn't cross train. I, I think I took like eight to 10 weeks or I just <laughs> did no physical activity. I, I just kind of let myself go. And, um, it's the best thing I ever did. And it really forced me to, um, reevaluate my relationship with running and what I wanted to get out of it and what place I wanted it to have in my life and forced me to think more about the decisions that I made and how they affected me. And, um, you know, it was, you know, at the time it was kind of a depressing, like low time, but looking back, I'm like, that was really important because I feel like now, you know, as a, still as an, as an athlete, um, and as a coach, like, my perspective is just a lot better than it ever was. And it's, it's good for me um, because, knock on wood, I've been able to stay healthy since 2008. I haven't had any injuries that have, you know, sidelined me or caused me to miss any period of time um, with running So I've learned how to read my body better and make smarter decisions. But also as a coach, I can use – I think I, I can spot things in people – before they can and you know help them from going down a destructive path, whether that's overtraining or under-eating or um, just not treating their body well or not having a good relationship with running. Um, and you know, for me, it's really, you know, it's it's really important for me to be able to to help others learn from my mistakes and um you know, and help them not commit the same ones and get more out of their running and have a better relationship with it. And, um, you know, looking back, I'm like, well, maybe I, maybe I wasn't meant to be, you know, the Olympic trials qualifier. Um, you know, maybe I could have been if I made some smarter decisions, but maybe like the decisions that I did make and the results that came of it, you know, they've, they've helped shape my current perspective and they've helped me to help others, um, get closer to their goals and, And not have to, you know, not have to, I shouldn't say give them up, but not be able to pursue them, you know, in the manner that they want to. So,
1: yeah. And that kind of a long winded answer, but no, it's powerful. And I just, I just want to acknowledge that I think it's so cool that you're able to be so open about your struggles and your highs and lows because having like being in the valley, Hmm. you now understand like what that's like and you're able to see it in other people and you're actually like, you 're a student of the sport, you're a teacher in the sport, like you've been in all the different places and you've yeah. had a lot of the different experiences, yeah, which just gives so much richness to like all your work
0: yeah well I, I mean you know I think there's only so much you can learn from a textbook, a lot of it's especially in running and, and certainly with coaching, a lot of it is experience, whether it's your own or you learn from you know someone else I mean a lot of things that i that I went through, you're not going to find in, you know, a textbook. But I know there are a lot of runners, male and female, who struggle with it. Um, you know, I I can look you in the face and say I had an eating disorder, um, never had it diagnosed, never got professional treatment for it. Um, thankfully, I had a lot of friends who looked out for me and called me out on some stuff and supported me when I needed it. But, I mean, I had an unhealthy relationship with my body and with food and and with running and, you know, all those things play off of each other and they all go together and, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but, I mean, I learned so much from, you know, I learned so much from that time in my life. I mean, I look back at the stuff that I was doing, I was like, you were just an idiot. Um, and, and that's not the, you know, that's not to say people are, are idiots, but, I mean, these are decisions that I made, so I feel like I could say that about myself. But, I mean, you know, here I am trying to run, 115 120 miles a week so that i can qualify for the olympic trials uh so that i can look more look the part so to speak um as an elite distance runner and you know realize not realizing like yeah you can't do that on like 800 calories a day um you know you can't lose 16 pounds in like six weeks or something like that and you know expect that you're going to sustain for a while um you know, just like looking back at my, you know, my experiences as a, you know, as a post-collegiate and again, um, thinking I was a know-it-all and realizing that I I was just beginning to learn actually.
1: Um, well, and also it's not like, I feel like you can't be mad at yourself yeah. because at that time you were actually just doing the best you could, no, ex- exactly. which was pursuing your dreams. Yeah. And that's how you thought. Yeah. It was obviously that was distorted thinking and you Mm -hmm. have perspective now, but like that's kind of a part of it.
0: Yeah. And it just, you know, again, just to, you know, just to kind of hammer home, it really looking back, it's like, I would have benefited from having, you know, a coach at that time who, who I was willing to kind of almost like give myself up to and trust completely. And I think that was part of it too, is I, you know, I had a hard time trusting other people. Um, And it was just a, again, it was just a really tough time, you know, of my life, but I learned so much from it and I feel like I can take those lessons and, you know, share them with others. And hopefully, you know, as I've said in my writing before, if I can help one person through my own experiences, then, you know, it was worth it for me to go through that so that someone else doesn't have to.
1: I feel like in the sport of running, um, male eating disorders are pretty taboo. Because a lot of people, I think, speak about it in terms of women having eating disorders sure. in the running culture. Why do you think that is, and like, how can we change the dialogue about that?
0: Well, it's it's totally taboo, and I think, as you just said, a lot of folks look at it as a female problem, um, not a not a human problem. It's a female problem, and it's not. It's a it's a human problem. There are as many, maybe not as many. I don't have the data to back it up, but I mean, there are a good number of male. Distance runners, athletes in general, males in general, who, you know, have an unhealthy relationship with their bodies, with, you know, with food, um, and you know, struggle silently, um, and they don't talk about it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, it's not a masculine thing to do. Um, you know, it's oh, that's a that's a female problem, and you know, a lot of guys are whether they would admit it or not are too macho to admit you know, that they would have a problem that most people think of as as female. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, And guys in general just have a hard time admitting weakness, Um, you know, and that's a, it's definitely a period of weakness and vulnerability. And, um, you know, what's interesting is I had friends who were like, yeah, we knew something was going on, something wasn't right. We could tell, but no one would ever say anything to you. And it's like, you know, it's hard for, you know, it's hard for me to talk about it with people, but it was hard for people who, saw me struggling to, you know, reach out and say, hey, are you doing okay? I mean, fortunately I did. I had a friend, a good friend of mine, um, Christina, she, I mean, she had been through some of the same stuff herself, and she saw what was happening with me, and she called me out on it. And it was, you know, it was one of the best things that, that happened because it forced me to kind of come to terms with what I was doing to myself and, and what effect it was having on not only me but my relationships and everything going on around me. I mean, you... You don't realize it, but you become—you know—I became very. I don't know if insular is the right word, but I mean, I just—you isolate yourself, yeah, exactly. You're, so you're isolated, focused totally. on your totally
1: on keeping it all together. Yep,
0: keeping it all together, and and I think on some level, subconsciously, or you know, you've you know, something's off and not right, but you don't want to talk about it, so you just sort of keep it to yourself, like it's your dirty little secret type thing, and um, and that was definitely me. And I mean, I, I feel fortunate that I you know, I had people after the fact say, yeah, we knew something wasn't right. And, you know, my own parents too. Um, but you know, my friend Christina called me out on it and was willing to, you know, which was good, you know, it was, it was good that she was really blunt with me, but you know, she's also like, let me help you. And, um, and that was, you know, I'll be forever thankful of that, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that a lot of males do struggle with. And I don't think they, one, I I don't think they know how to, Talk about it with others, and I think others have a hard time approaching a male that they see struggling uh, to offer them help, and you know, and that's a vicious, you know, that's a vicious place to be. That's a, you know, that's um, you know, I think that's one of the kind of the major, you know, definitely one of the major major problems. But you know, as I've said in posts that I've written, like you know, let's talk about it. let's have an open dialogue, um, you know, be okay with. Um approaching a friend who you think is struggling and do it in a you know in a tactful way and if you feel like you're struggling or you can you know you're struggling you're afraid to talk like you know reach out to someone even if it 's someone that you don't know like there are people out there willing to you know willing to help you and realize that you know it's a it's okay it's not um you know it doesn't make you a a terrible person it doesn't you know everyone struggles with with something um but you know reach out for help and you know you can you can improve your situation, and then hopefully you can help improve others. And um, but I think because it is so isolated, when things are isolated, it's you know it's for better or worse. It's hard to you know it's hard to spread awareness of something, and and hard to really keep a conversation going. So you know that's why I try to be open about it in hopes that I can spur someone else who identifies with my story and says, yeah, I struggled with a lot of the same things, and you know, gets them to talk about it with me or someone else. And, you know, it's kind of like a game of telephone. All of a sudden things start spreading and everyone's talking about it. And the more people are talking about it, I think the more comfortable people are going to get about um, helping one another out and um, working toward solutions. So,
1: Yeah. I think that's all so spot on. I think what you're really saying is just creating dialogue and through dialogue Mm -hmm. there's healing. And for you, the 2008 dream of making Olympic trials was not realized, but you did get to go to the 2012 Olympics Mm -hmm. as a coach for the Costa Rican team.
0: You know, what's interesting is, so I, I got my last stress fracture in 2008. And, um, again, I, best thing I did was take some time off and, you know, sort of heal from that. And I mean, and, and by that point I, you know, my relationship with myself and with eating was, was much better and certainly improved. And, this was just sort of residual. I mean, I'm still paying for it, and in, in some regards, but that was more like a residual thing. But I remember after my mom passed and I was injured, and I I told my dad just in a wave of emotion and determination that I was gonna I was going to the 2012 Olympics, and and I had forgotten about that actually. Um, my dad reminded me of it when it. Actually happened. Um, But yeah, in 2012, I I had the opportunity to coach Cesar Lozano of Costa Rica um, in the marathon um, for the London Games. And I got to be part of the Costa Rican delegation and go to the Olympics and live in the village for 18 days and take part in the ceremonies and use all the facilities and eat in the dining hall and, I mean, experience the whole thing um, as a coach. And I still have the certificate on my wall at home that says Mario Fraley was a participant in the 2012 games at the London Olympics. And I, it's still kind of surreal to me. Um, but it was an amazing experience and, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't make it there as an athlete, but I, I got to have my Olympic experience and it's just, I don't know if that's, you know, the universe working in funny ways or, um, you know, just being so determined to get somewhere that ultimately you find a way even though you weren't really looking for it. I mean, the opportunity kind of fell in my lap, to be honest. And um, I'm grateful for it and I made the most of it. And it was, you know, it was, it was amazing. Um, but I, I did get to have that experience in, in 2012. Not, maybe not how I had originally envisioned it, but it was still, you know, one of the most special experiences of my life.
1: What in particular was really special about it?
0: Um, Just to to be a part of the journey with Cesar. And that was his first Olympic Games and something he had been working toward as an athlete for many years. And um, I started working with him about about 10 months, I think, before the Games started, and he had already had his qualifier. And... um, sought me out as a coach and it's his first Olympics first time someone from his country has been to the Olympics in the marathon um, for a male in I think like let's see 84 so you know almost 30 years 28 years or something like that and you know Cesar is a national figure in Costa Rica and has a lot of attention on him and he really wanted to do well and, you know, he trusted me to guide him in this journey, and that meant a lot to me. Um, a lot of, ath- I mean, athletes do that when they approach me for coaching all the time, but this was, I mean, this is like the ultimate level, right? And and I, I think I realized that, and it, it just kind of meant a lot to me that someone would trust me with something so important, um, especially someone I hadn't met before who just sort of knew about me through you know, my writing and, um, results of my other athletes and, and whatnot. And it was, a you know, it was just a really special time. Like I got to go to Costa Rica and be part of this press conference. And, you know, we did a few training camps before, you know, the Olympics where Cesar came to San Diego where I lived at the time. And, you know, I'd, I'd gone to Costa Rica with him and, um, you know, we'd done some races and, um, for him, it was, you know, I approached training him like I would any athlete. And for him, he was doing things in training that he hadn't done before and was seeing success that he hadn't had before. And, um, you know, he had run PR, you know, in the build-up to the Olympics, he would run PRs at 5K and 10K and um, and half marathon. And then going into the Olympics, he was, you know, he was ranked um, 103rd of 105 guys on the starting line. So, I mean, he really... He had nothing to lose, Um, but for him, he was, you know, he should have been just happy to be there, but he wanted to do as well as possible, and, um, you know, he had a great buildup, and, you know, he was confident on the day, and he ended up moving up throughout the race and um, finished 64th at the Olympics, and that was a big deal. Um, You know, it wasn't a fast day time-wise because it was kind of a crappy course and, um, super hot for a marathon, but, you know, he outran his ranking by quite a bit on the world's largest stage. And it was just, it was just really cool to be a part of that, like, you know, totally selfish thing, but it was, it was like, yeah, I played a big hand in that and, um, I'm super happy for him and I'm proud of what we were able to accomplish together. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's something, you know, you know, even though Cesar and I don't work together anymore, it's still something we talk about. And, uh, you know, we're still good friends. And um, it was just a really amazing experience. So,
1: Yeah, what you spoke to about the trust, that's something that really stood out to me As you were saying that after college, you know, you struggled with trusting mm-hmm. a coach. But to have someone put full trust in you, right. that's so powerful.
0: Right. Yeah, I th- I think about that all the time with every athlete that I work with is... You know, I've, I've never recruited an athlete um, to work with me I've always been approached whether it's when I was working at a running store in Massachusetts and I had a woman come in who wants to run her first 5k to a guy who wants to you know run as well as possible at the Olympics um, you know people come to me because you know they want me to guide them toward their goal and that's a really powerful thing and not something I take lightly. And every time, I mean, I don't work with a lot of athletes one-on-one and it's just, when you enter into that relationship, um, it's one based completely on trust. And I don't take it lightly, but it's, you know, it's, it's a really special thing. You're like, this person's entrusting me to guide them to where they want to go. And I think my first thought is like, well, don't screw it up. And you know at the same time it's like you want to keep that you know you want to keep that trust going um because oftentimes you know you're going to change what that athlete was doing and you know they may have their doubts for you know you can see that they're like doubting what you're having them do and then all of a sudden they have a breakthrough and and they're like oh yeah well that's well, that's why I hired you like you know I'm going to trust you type thing and um i don't know like those those relationships are just really special. And I think that's whether it's a coach athlete relationship or with your spouse or just a friend, like having, you know, having someone's trust is, is something I don't take very lightly. And I think it just shows that, you know, it just shows that how, how willing someone is to believe in, in you and that, you know, that fuels me to want to help them to the best of my
1: ability. When you look at, 2016 thus far. Mm -hmm. Can you take me to a certain coaching moment or an athlete that you're working with right now and either a breakthrough they've had with you or just a moment that really stood out that moved you?
0: Yeah. So I work with a woman, um, whose name is Caroline Bowler and Caroline's 41. She really started running, competing about three years ago. And Caroline and I started working together in November of last year. And the first race on her calendar was the North Face 50 Mile in December. I think it was December sixth last year, and we had a nice little build-up for North Face. And, and when I started working with Caroline, she was um, she had dropped out of the Chicago Marathon about a month before, and she was really just burned out and frustrated. And you know, she came to me on the recommendation of some others, and you know, really just wanted some guidance. She was coaching herself at the time and um, really wanted to just be training productively again and enjoying running. And, um, you know, so we started in November and started training for North Face 50 mile. And she actually had a great little six week block of training and we're excited for it. Um, We thought she could finish top five and it was a really loaded field. And, she was going along pretty good early on in the race. And I was staying with her husband at about, I think it was like the 26 or 27 mile mark, uh, where there was an aid station. We were wait, waiting for her to come through and all these runners passed and runners that she had been ahead of earlier in the race. And, you know, I had this thought, I was like, uh, oh. I'm like, something must've, something must've happened because she would have come through by now. And, um, you know, sure enough, a few minutes later, Caroline comes up the trail and she's covered in dirt and blood and, she's walking. And, you know, her husband and I go up to her, like, what happened? And she's like, oh, I slipped on a, you know, I slipped on some stairs and I face planted and I think I broke some teeth. And her husband, her husband looks at her and says, smile. And she smiled and he goes, no, your teeth are fine. She goes, no, they're not. I, I spit some out a few miles ago. Um, But so she had had this nasty fall and she gets to us and she's a little more than halfway through. She's got 23 miles, 24 miles or so to go. And she, she's not sure what she should do. And I'm like, well, I'm like, Hey, it's up to you. No one's going to force you to keep going. Um, and no one's going to look at you funny if you decide your day's over right now. Um, but I'm not going to force, force your hand either way. And she tried to keep going. Ultimately she stopped. And, um, you know, in in the week after the race, she was really beating herself up for, you know, it was a second straight race she had DNF'd, and um, even though she had a good training block, she was just bummed that, you know, the race didn't work out, and it wasn't it wasn't just she had a bad race. I mean, she fell and smashed her face, and had to get some serious dental work done to fix her teeth. Um, you know, and I just worked with her to shake that off, and. Like, well, let's reevaluate and let's look at 2016 and, you know, see what's, you know, see what's possible. And, um, about a week. So that race was on a Saturday, December 6th on that Friday after the race, um, the IAAF changed their Olympic standards for the marathon and they bumped the qualifying from, 2.43 for women at 2.45, and I think men was 2.18 to 2.19. And Caroline's PR at the time was 2.45.27, I think. So, you know, prior to North Face, her thought was, well, I'm two and a half minutes off. I don't know that I want to chase a time. That's why we decided to run North Face. But now she's within 30 seconds. And she didn't, you know, North Face was disappointing. She didn't finish, but she didn't try... the plus side of that was she didn't trash herself for 50 miles. She more or less went for a 20, because well, she, she walked a few miles less, so she more or less went for like a 23-mile long run. Um, and now she's within 30 seconds of the trial's qualifying time, and there's almost exactly a month to do it because January, I think it was 17th, was the cutoff date. So, you know, we sort of huddled up and we said, well, you're in great shape. You, you had a great six-week block before North Face, even though it didn't, didn't really pan out i think if we can i'm like you know i think if we can steer your training and make it a little more marathon specific here these next four weeks um i think you've got a shot to qualify for the trials at houston and that was really that was the last day you could qualify and houston's known as a um known to be a pretty fast course weather's always the wild card but you know it's a good place to give it give it a try and she was like let's do it you know so we turned our Turned our focus toward Houston. Um, and Caroline was determined she had a great little training block. About 10 days before the race, her mom dies unexpectedly um, of a of a brain aneurysm of all things. Same thing I lost my mom to, which is just crazy. And um, you know, her mom and dad, Caroline lives in Santa Barbara area, her mom and dad lived in Napa, um, but they're from the UK originally, so She's got family coming over from the UK. She's the point person coordinating the whole thing. She's got to go from Santa Barbara to Napa, make the arrangements, you know, all this stuff. Um, And she's got – she's trying to qualify for Olympic trials in 10 days. And, you know, long story short, I think they – I think her mom's service was on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Uh, Thursday, she drove home. Friday, she got on a plane to Houston Um, got to the hotel and, you know, here's a woman who's just like emotionally exhausted from dealing with, you know, her, everything related to, to her mom's passing. And we talked on, you know, the Friday before the race and she's like, you know, this is the first time I've been able to like, just stop for the last 10 days and take a breath and take it all in. And I was like, well, like, you've certainly earned that and, you know, take it and, um, we talked about the race and again, it was one of those things where I was like, Hey, you've dealt with a lot here in the last 10 days. If you don't feel like racing, no one's, you know, I'm not going to judge you at all. Like you've, you know, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. She's like, no, she's like, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, um, long story short, she qualified for the trial. She ran two forty four twenty two. She 22 PR by over a minute. Um, and you know, the last day you could qualify for the trials and, um, It was awesome. I mean, it was, you know, it was the best thing that had happened to her in the previous couple of months. And, you know, she's still dealing with, you know, the loss of her mom, which is, you know, who she was super close to. But, you know, she was able to still, despite all of that, and and probably because of it, honestly, just have the strength to, after an exhausting 10 days of dealing with all this stuff, power through and qualify for the trials. Um. You know, story gets even better. So, you know, the trials is now a month later in LA, four weeks. So, you know, she's got to recover from qualifying for the trials and the marathon, um, and then running the trials in LA, which was just a, a horrendous day to run a marathon. It's, you know, super hot and people are dropping like flies. I was and, out there spectating. Um, it yeah, was crazy. Yeah, it was, it was hellacious. Um, and she just, you know, we took it pretty easy in, in the interim and did a couple workouts just to kind of keep her going um but she just wasn't recovered when the the trials rolled around and you know she was like there's no way i'm not finishing this race but you know slow for everybody and she i think she'd run like a i think she ran 257 at the trials um and she was happy to be there proud that she finished um it was the first race her dad had ever watched her run which is cool um she would have liked to finish higher but she still beat some women that you know, we're ranked behind her. She, you know, a weird day, and I was proud of her. And um, we were talking about sort of like what's next, and we had plans for her to return to the trail. She's more of a trail ultra runner. Um, and she had, had the idea. She's like, well, the f- I've never run a, an ultra race on the roads, and the 50K national championships are in New York, and they're just a few weeks after the trials. Um, so again, one of the, kind of the benefits of the trials being as slow as it was, it really like she went into preservation mode. So she wasn't crushing herself for 26 miles. It was more just like a, you know, long run, gutted out and finish. And she actually bounced back pretty well off of that. And we got in a couple weeks of training. She went to New York, um, won the U S 50 K national title, split 2:48 in the marathons so faster than she ran at Um, the trials and broke the American record for Masters uh, 40 plus and qualified for the qualified for the world team um, this November. So this is a really, really long answer to your question. Um, But in this year, that's been one of my proudest moments as a coach um, and someone, you know, be inspired by your own athletes and just their own determination and um, being able to bounce back from various types of adversity, um, whether it's running-related or not, and um, you know, just to be so determined to to kind of hit hit a goal or even to do something that you know probably six months ago Caroline didn't think was possible um, is really gratifying and, and something I'm just always proud to be a part of. Um, you know, and I'm just really proud of her as you know as an athlete and. Um I think that exemplifies like that's the type of athlete that I want to work with and that's the type of athlete that I want, you know, kind of setting you know, I think it sets a tone for the other people that I coach too. But um, you know, as far as this year goes, I mean that it was just the most incredible like <laughs> two and a half month stretch between, you know, someone who was just really down on their running Started getting excited about it again, feeling better than she has in months. Falling flat on her face, um, you know, and then being disappointed, and then being like, "Okay, well, I'm gonna try to qualify for the trials." And losing your mom, and then actually qualifying for the trials, and having a disappointing race at trials, and then setting an American record, and doing all that stuff. And it was just like it was this crazy roller coaster um, over the course of two and a half months. But I'm, I couldn't be more proud of how she handled it, and um, you know, she she's getting what she deserves out of it which is all good stuff so
1: and then it sounds like with your coaching you guys have been open to like the uncertainty yeah like to not be so sometimes fixed Mm -hmm. in this is the path that we're going to take but being open to being like okay this opportunity is presenting itself yeah let's welcome that.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I don't think you could ever be too rigid in your planning. Sometimes you have to be, I mean, there, are you know, Olympic trials and Olympics and national championships. Like those dates are pretty fixed. And if you're gearing up for those types of things, like, you know, you've got to plan out well in advance, but you know, as we saw with Caroline, sometimes things just don't, for whatever reason, they don't work out in your favor. Um, but the iron's still hot and i think you've got to you've got to find a place to strike when the iron's hot and um i think just you've got to be rigid to a degree but you've also got to maintain a sense of flexibility and know like all right well even if that main objective for whatever reason we're not able to go after it or achieve it there's always something else you can apply yourself toward and and you can surprise yourself and it can be gratifying in in a different way um you know for you know, for Caroline, it was qualify for the trials, um, you know, and hopefully have a, you know, tight, but turn around in four weeks and have another great race at the trials. Um, Didn't work out, but it allowed her to, you know, take advantage of this other opportunity and, and it just went, you know, as as well as anyone could have expected to. And now she's going to run on her first U S team, which for her is a big deal because she just got her citizenship about a year ago. So that's um, so cool. So, yeah, it's, you know, I think it's important as a, as an athlete and a coach to, you know, just not be, you know, just not be so um, hard-headed all the time. Um, you know, in some regards you, you have to be, and that's – and great athletes are. But I think, too, you can miss a lot of opportunities if you're too focused on, on one thing, mm-hmm. um, especially for – with runners for all the training that you put into, you know, especially longer races like the marathon ultras, it's like all this work goes into one day. Um, and I've always hated that because, you know, if that one day goes great, then yeah, on in, in some sense it validates all that work. But I tell people, like, none of this goes to waste, you know, so let's find other ways that we can make use of it, um, you know, whether it's, you know, another race or something else further down the road. So I think it's just, I think it's just important to keep a flexible mindset in regard to that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And, in addition to coaching, you've worked with Competitor Magazine for six years, yep. and you just announced that you're transitioning out of being the senior editor.
0: Yeah, last week was um, my last week at Competitor after six years. And uh, it's still, you know, as as we chat right now, I'm on vacation with my wife passing through Bend, Oregon, which is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, so it it still hasn't hit me yet because I haven't officially started my new job either um, but it's a little bittersweet I'm you know I'm really um, I'm proud of what we've done at competitor in the last six years and the role that I've played in it and sad to leave um, just a great team and you know I'm still super close with Brian Metzler the editor-in chief and um, we had a really small staff so we worked closely together on a lot of things and I'm, I'm sad when I think about not being a part of that anymore. Um, At the same time, I'm excited to pursue a new opportunity next week, which is something I I still can't get into too much detail about, given um, where the company is at this point of its existence. But I can say that um, it is going to allow me to uh, put more of my energy into coaching and helping other people. Um, And that's something that really excites me, and I can't wait to get started.
1: And so, this new opportunity has a connection to coaching. You're saying totally, yeah, and to running yep. in some capacity. Yeah,
0: totally. Um, and I'll be able to talk about it a bit more in a few weeks. Um,
1: so everyone should subscribe to his The Morning Shakeout so that yeah, you know. <laughs> subscribe to my newsletter, The
0: Morning Shakeout, and you can be you can be in the know on the most recent developments. But yeah, I mean, at, I was at Competitor for six years, and um, you know the company was was great to me. And I've, you know, a lot of the opportunities that I've had, uh, in my professional career are because of my role at competitor. And I'm thankful for all of those. And it wasn't an easy decision to leave, but I wouldn't have made the decision that I did if I didn't feel really strongly about what I'm going to be trying to do. Um, so I'm excited to be able to share, share some of that here in the next, in the next few weeks.
1: Yeah. So So with competitor you were telling me off mic that you were, you know, you didn't study writing in college. Yeah. You weren't like an English major. You were a philosophy major. Yeah. What was it like to have so much of your life focused on writing? If that's not necessarily something you were trained in as a journalist? Yeah, like being self taught.
0: It's just something I've always enjoyed doing, and oftentimes I need to remind myself of that because it it can be work. Writing's hard work. Um, but when I was in college, I. I mean, I loved philosophy, and that's why that's why I chose to major in it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I thought I may go to law school or I may go into counseling or something of some sort, but I, I stayed with philosophy just because I enjoyed the material. I enjoyed what I was reading, and I really liked writing papers and being able to um, take a stance and defend it rather than take a multiple-choice test, and I've always, I've always preferred that. Um, And even just kind of, you know, it's funny when you think back, like if you rewind the tape back to grade school, I remember when I was in second grade, one of our projects was to publish our first book. And I remember I I wrote a book about Batman, but we wrote about it on, it was like an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, like white paper. And you wrote the story and drew the pictures and folded it in half. And then you took a piece of construction paper and that was your cover that you put on the outside and the teacher would laminate it. Um, so it was glossy and then staple it together and we put it on the shelf and you know that was I just remember that being a huge thrill for me like I just loved that Um, something about the, the process of coming up with an idea and and writing it out and then putting it all together and then you have this finished product that you know people can spend time with and and enjoy and learn from and I think that that seed was planted really at a really early age and then you know as I said in college I just really enjoyed writing and after college you know I made tried to my main focus was making it as trying to make it as a professional runner um and when I moved back to Massachusetts after my brief stint in Oregon I needed to find a job to start paying back my college loans and the first job that I could find um was with my local newspaper back home, the Worcester Telegram Gazette, and it was answering telephones in the sports department. And I did that for 16 hours a week. It was four nights, four hours, five to nine. High school and college coaches would call in about their game that day and give you the stats and who did what. And it was my job to take that information and put it into a box score, but also to write up a two or three sentence roundup based on The information that I was told so that people knew what happened in that game. And it was, I mean, there was no byline involved in that, but there was something about that process of taking these disparate pieces of information and forming a little story out of it that let people know how that game played out, um, and I loved that. Um, it was storytelling. Yeah, it was storytelling. Uh, in two or three sentences, like, and they told us like, you can't write more than three sentences, or we're going to chop it down. Um, you know, and I and I've always liked those constraints. Um,
1: Even now on your Instagram, I love the thing two you're words. Doing. Yeah, yeah,
0: say two words. It's a creative constraint. It really forces you to think about what's important and you know what you're trying to say, and especially if you're trying to tell some sort of a story, like making sure you still get the people know what's going on in in as few words as, as possible. But it just, I think it really fosters critical thinking and, um, helps you to cut out fluff. And I mean, that's what I've always, you know, in my work at competitor, I've, I've always enjoyed editing. Like I, I love editing stuff down. Um, it's tedious, it's hard work, but it really forces you to look at a body of words and say, well, what, what needs to be here and what can we take out, um, type of thing. But I mean, that's, you know, it's just always like looking back, like at different points, like from second grade and then, you know, college writing papers and then, you know, just getting this, you know, $9 an hour job, answering phones and writing these short little, writes being like, I really enjoy this. Like, I just really like doing it. Um, and you know, I've just, I've been really fortunate in my professional career to have a lot of the opportunities that I've, that I've had. And even at the newspaper, I mean, there really wasn't a logical path for me. And, um, it's even a lot different today, but this is in, you know, early, this is like 2004, 2005. And, um, but even back then, you know, as digital was becoming more prominent and newspaper circulations were going down, still to get a staff job at a newspaper as a as an editor as a writer, um, someone's either got to quit, get fired, or die. Um, really, to to move move on up, like there's just there's just not a lot of opportunities there. And um, luckily for me, uh, someone on our staff got fired for for plagiarizing Peter King at the Super Bowl and that caused some shuffling in the staff and you know one of the copy editors took over as the high school writer and the high school writer took over as the patriots beat writer and that opened up a you know a part-time copy editing position which was 30 hours a week and much better pay than the call taker and i was like well why not i'll you know i'll apply for that and um you know and i i did and i you know and i got the job and that was my first real like editing job aside from I mean answering the phone that's all that was I was answering the phones and doing these little roundups but I'm like now I'm an editor at a newspaper and um, I didn't go to journalism school and I I hadn't taken any formal classes it was just something that always I think like clear concise writing is something that's always come natural to me or something that I've always appreciated and I mean I got that job because I scored highest on the editing test Um, and it just opened up you know I learned a lot I was able to learn a lot from editors who'd been on the desk for you know decades and it was real on the job training and I knew that if I screwed it up i was i was gonna get they wouldn't hesitate to fire me um you know so it it forced me to learn pretty quickly um, and and kind of develop it's like trial by fire like just really developing my skills like on the spot um you know and it was a little bit more secure job wise and you know from there i you know, I was like, well, I'm like, I'd love to start telling more stories. And we had our newspaper actually had a running column and we had a guy that we paid 75 bucks a week, I think, to write a running column. And I filled in for him while he was on vacation once And the sports editor. I was like, well, this is way better than everything that Ron's, Ron's done. Like, we'll find a way to work this into your, you know, 30-ish hours a week of copy editing and you know, so that way we don't have to like pay, we won't pay you extra for it, but we'll give you a little bit more time. And, uh, and, you know, that was just really kind of the start of writing a bit more. And, um, you know, I ultimately left the newspaper to work in a run specialty store because it was more secure. Um, you know, it was full time and I had benefits and um, more steady hours. I mean, if you're a copy editor at a newspaper, you go at five or six and you work until one, two in the morning. Uh, so it was, you know, it was it made training a little bit difficult and having a social life difficult and all this stuff. But, um, you know, it was, it was, I, I, I left it mainly for security and to get a steady, you know, I would still say steady paycheck and benefits and, you know, some more normalcy. And, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd managed the running store for almost four years and, um, I just really missed writing, and I remember it was like end of 2009. I went to my boss, Rich, who is still one of my best friends, and was groomsman in my wedding. And I was like, "Rich, I, um, you know, I want to talk to you about something. I, you know, I'm like, I really miss writing, and I want to, I want to do more of it, and I want to coach more. Um, it's just gonna be really hard for me to do, you know, working full time here at the store." would you be open to me, you know, giving up my store manager position and moving, you know, moving to part-time? And, and he was completely supportive of the idea. And this was like end of 2009. So I, I cut back to working three days a week at the store, which opened two days a week for me to write. And I just started, you know, pitching like a madman to Running Times, New England Runner and Triathlete Magazine and Competitor had just kind of gotten started then, at least the website. And, um I started writing for competitor, and um I got some good guidance. I reached out to Scott Douglas, who was at running times, and you know Scott had me up to his house in Maine one day and just kind of gave me his best advice for making it as a, as a writer in the running world and um I remember his best advice to me was just like pitch pitch, 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 and pitch some more and when you've thought you've pitched too much, keep pitching um and I really just kind of took that to heart and I, I did pretty well right away. Like I got some good stories and, you know, got a feature in running times and, um, you know, was coaching more people on the side and I was really happy with how things were going. And, um, it was like 2010, spring of 2010 that an opportunity to work at competitor opened up and, um, I knew how few and far between those opportunities were in running media to actually be on staff somewhere and get paid to, um, do that full time. And, um, I got the job and forced me to, you know, required me to move out to San Diego. And I mean, I even took a pay cut to take the job, but I knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, and it was a great, you know, kind of a great six year run. And, um, you know, two years, starting two years into that 2012, uh, we brought Brian Metzler on board to be the editor in chief. And Brian was someone I, um, whose work I'd long admired and really, you know, just took advantage of the opportunity to work with him and learn so much. And, he made me a better writer and a better editor and, um, you know, I'll forever be thankful of just his guidance, you know, and, you know, in my career. And, um, you know, even now, as I said, it was hard for me to leave competitor, but, um, I still love writing and I still love the running world and keeping an eye on what's going on and, um, being able to share things with people, which is, you know, something I plan to do more of with, not only my weekly newsletter, but hopefully I can do some, you know, some additional projects as well. Um, to sort of keep my, keep, keep my hand in it even while I'm, I'm doing other things. So I don't have, I don't have too much trouble keeping busy.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. it sounds like there was a lot of hustling for you in, oh, yeah. in everything and that you really like you stayed the course and that sounds like a theme in your entire life. Isn't yeah. it like You've always stayed the course on whatever you were passionate about at that time.
0: Right. Well, it goes back to what I talked about earlier in, you know, earlier in this interview with my dad. My dad always, from time I was a young, young kid, my grandfather, they would say, if you, you know, if you want something, you've got to work for it. No one's going to hand it to you. And I've, I've never forgotten that. I'll never forget that. And I see it a lot now. Um, You know, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of the, I can be a grumpy old man sometimes, but I mean, I see people getting into media now or even getting into professional running now and they feel like the world owes them something. Um, You know, oh, I ran fast, give me a contract. Um, I deserve a contract because I've run fast. It's like, no, you've got to, you know, yeah, you've worked hard to run fast, but you've got to work hard for that brand too. And, you know, even in in media, people get, you know, I knew when I got that job at Competitor to that, um, I kind of got lucky because those, positions don't open up very often. Um but I knew I was going to I knew it's where I wanted to be and I was going to take advantage of it and you know I busted my butt for the last 6 years to get where I am now and I see people come in you know in you know I just pay attention to the media world and I see people come in uh get their first editorial job out of college and within a year they think they should be running the show and it's like it just doesn't it doesn't happen that way. Like you've got to pay your dues and um you've got to put the work in and you've got a lot more to learn and i think for me one of my biggest advantages as a writer and an editor and even as a coach is i've i'm doing these things because i have an interest in them and because you know because i want to i want to become a better writer i want to be a better editor i want to be a better coach and you know i've hustled to learn what I've needed to learn, develop the skills that I've needed to develop to do my job as best as possible. And that's something, I mean, I hope I never lose, um, you know, because I'm always just trying to improve. And, you know, I think that's, and that's something I try to instill upon, you know, people who either know me or follow me or, um, you know, want to know more about me. It's like, you've got to, you know, you've, you want to get somewhere you've got to work like you've just got to you've got to keep working and and like you said stay the course you know and the course isn't always it's not always smooth sailing i mean there's there's always going to be you know bumps and waves and things along the way but you've just got to you know be determined to keep making progress and moving forward and um that's something i've just always tried to do
1: yeah it is inspiring so thank you um something you have been very vocal about in your writing and in your morning shakeout newsletter is um, changing our sport and Mm -hmm. doping and the role of drugs in our sport. And I wanted to kind of just talk about that a little bit and how you actually see real change happen, happen. Like how's that going to happen in our sport? And especially with the Olympics fast Mm -hmm. approaching.
0: Well, I think – on many levels, the sport of track and field and competitive running is very archaic. Uh, it's been stuck in the same ways for many, many decades, and it's hard to really make change. And as people who pay attention to what's going on in the sport know, there are athletes who are just kind of sick of the bureaucracy and sick of the way things have always been in coaches, and they're being very vocal about it and and making some headway. Um the obvious ones are, you know, Nick Simmons is is pretty vocal on things. Lauren Fleshman's very vocal about things. Um, but there are a lot of athletes who are, you know, quiet because they've been able to, you know, they're doing okay for themselves. And, and I think that's part of the problem with track and running. You've got a lot of people, you know, all the way down to the athlete level who are just looking out for themselves. And then certainly on the administrative level who are looking out for themselves or, you know, for some sponsorship deal that they made so that they benefit from it. And I think there's just, this has been going on for decades, and it's going to be really, really hard to unwind. And, you know, I've been in the running industry in various capacities now for, God, like, you know, over 10, well, as an athlete, 18 years. But, you know, just since I've gotten out of school, you know, 2004, so we're going like 12 years, and you know, from specialty running to media to, you know, okay athlete to high level coach i've I've seen a lot of things, and um, I've seen a lot of things I don't agree with. and um, I'm gonna be vocal about it. And I think the more people that are vocal about it and who not not are only not only are vocal about it but can offer solutions. and you know that only gets you so far. I mean people actually actually have to act on those things um, to make the change. But, you know, I've seen a lot of injustices towards athletes and, and things that are hurting the sport as a whole. I mean, track and field is, I mean, look, every, every sport in the world has its foundation in what track and field celebrates, athleticism, running, um, jumping higher, jumping further, um, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's an exciting sport. It's filled with drama. Um, You know, it can be inspiring on so many levels from, you know, 90-year-old folks setting records at the Penn Relays to, you know, a seven-year-old kid taking part in the Junior Olympics and, you know, Usain Bolt breaking world records and everything in between. Um, But a lot of those stories aren't being told very well. Um, You know, a lot of them aren't allowed to be told very well. Um, A lot of athletes are kind of limited in what they can do and what they can say and, um I don't know, I, I mean, I could go on about all the all the different things. I need to get a notebook out and start listing them. But you know, as I you know, especially now with um, with my newsletter, as I have been, and, and now that I'm not on staff at a you know a publication, I'm going to call it as I see it. And I think the more that I can do that and provide like a better picture of here's what's really going on and the challenges that. The sport is facing that athletes are facing that coaches are facing that sponsors are facing. Um, the better off I hope we all can be in in the long term, and that people can rally behind that. And um, I think that's what I mean. Ultimately, that's what it's going to take is is going to be. A, you know, some sort of unification on behalf of the athletes and the brands to, you know, force the changes that they want to see. If it's you know, if it's me spouting off about something, or Nick Simmons spouting off about something, or you know, Lauren Fleshman talking about what's what's right and what's wrong, um, you know, that's great. But more people need to band together and and beat that drum together, um, because you know, individuals are pretty easy to squash. But once you know athletes can unify and be like yeah we're not being treated very well like we want equal opportunity for everybody we don't want to be exploited you know on behalf of a you know governing body or corporate sponsor we want to be able to make a living doing the sport um you know media wanting to have opportunity to tell you know tell these great stories like you know there needs to be a lot more noise for that change to happen um so i'm just trying to do trying to do my part in that um And because it's something that, I mean, I love the sport and I love, you know, the industry. I love the athletes. I, you know, I feel like it's something that could be, you know, I think it could be one of the most popular sports in this country. I think it, it, you know, it certainly is at a participatory level, but it's like, you know, track is easy to forget about in the years between the Olympics and, um, you know, as I, I wrote in one of my recent newsletters, like, it's just, it's really packaged and presented poorly. Um, and, you know, I think if people have ideas on how to improve that, like, we should share them and, and try to spur change. And that's the only way it's going to happen. There are too many people in this sport on various levels that stay silent. And that's not a good thing.
1: So as a spectator, I actually had a listener when she found out I was interviewing you, you know, she asked, like, what's the first thing maybe as a spectator we can do to institute change?
0: That's a, that's a great question. Um,
1: that was Liz by the way, just th- going to give her a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> I think,
0: you know, I think letting, you know, letting USA track and field know, um, that, you know, if they didn't get much out of a broadcast or something, um, you know it's that's a good thing that's a great question as a as a spectator what can be done you know it's it's really um you know trying to you know i think spectators can you know if spectators are into watching an event or watching a sport or you know they feel proud to be part of a tribe um they're gonna spread that and i and i think you know i think um right now like the way the sports package and presented and said like on tv and and in other mediums like it's it's not really made for the spectators it's like i feel like there are governing bodies that are really just trying to satisfy their you know their sponsors more than anything else and you're cutting out kind of key events and not telling the stories of you know the the athletes who are doing great things and can connect to the spectators um I think the spectators can you know just be more vocal um you know tell governing bodies like what they want to see more of um what they're missing um you know and i I think if again if there's enough of a collective you know sort of uprising amongst spectators saying like i really want to be into this but i'm not i don't know i'm not entertained or it's too, you know, it's too long. It's boring. Um, you know, find ways to make it more exciting and innovate, like calling for innovation. I think that's gonna, you know, that's gonna help the sport, um, you know, and help it be more appealing to more spectators. I mean, that's the thing It's like the format of road races and track meets, like, you know, they're, they're not made for spectators. They're so long and drawn out and, you know, kind of slow. It's, you know, it's worse than baseball in that, you know, in that respect. But I think if you could, you know find a way to take these you know take these different events and and take these different skills that track athletes or track athletes have and you know putting different spins on them that make it you know make it worth getting behind um you know I think spectators need to demand you know spectators love cheering for teams like you know I think there needs to be more teams in running um you know calling for brands to you know or or to come together yeah that can come together you know or or people who can you know it costs money to put a team out there but you know spectators being like we you know that we want like people that we can get behind and it's hard to it's hard it's hard to get behind dozens of individual athletes but if you have dozens of individual athletes on a team all working toward a common goal competing against other teams um there's a natural inherent drama in that i mean team sports have shown that i mean i think if you know that would require some rethinking in terms of track and running and all that but um you know, it there's no reason why that change can't happen. It's just you know, I think I mean I think some things need to change in the governance of the sport for some of that stuff to happen. But I think the more spectators can demand um you know, more from the more from the sport and you know, more of an entertainment value and more something that they can get behind and follow throughout the year. I mean, that's a thing. It's like you know, marathons are great, but you know, world Mar- world marathon majors is the closest thing that we have to like a season that people can follow and the general public certainly doesn't get it. And even most hardcore running fans, you know, don't fall because these, these events are months and months apart. Um, you know, same thing with track. It's like there's the Olympic trials and then all these kind of one-off meets leading up to it where people are trying to qualify. And some people might race at one meet and not at another. And, um, you know, it's easy to forget about athletes, but I think if there were like a season or a circuit that, you know, people could follow a team and get behind and athletes competed regularly, um, you know, there's going to be excitement behind that. And, you know, I think everyone benefits, the athletes benefit, the fans benefit, brands benefit, um, you know, I think you can bring in new fans. And I mean, I could go on and on about those types of ideas, um, but I think spectators, you know, along with the athletes, along with the brands, like peop- everyone just needs to be demand more from the sport and demand, you know, demand change. Otherwise it's, you know, we're gonna keep doing things the way they've been done for decades and, uh, and then no, nothing really advances. So.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I think you dropped a lot of good ideas and insight on that. Um, to close up, I feel like I haven't asked you about where you're at right now with your running. I feel like we talked a lot about your own, your trajectory with running, your coaching, your writing. So right now, what is lighting you up about your running or are you working towards a certain goal or what brings you joy about it?
0: Um, main thing is my athletes. I mean, I'm putting most of my energy in toward, toward them and making sure that I'm doing what I need to do to help them achieve their goals. Um, so that's always number one for me right now but I still I try to run every day. Um it doesn't always work out that way for various reasons, but I like to try to get out every day and um kind of my my magic number is 60 minutes. I'd I love to give an hour of my day to running and it's mainly it's not really training. I mean, I just I like to get out, I like to be outside. Um I like to be preferably in nature on trails. Um, there's just something that feels good about that. It it gives me clarity. Uh, it feels good to move my body. Um, I love running with other people. Um, it's very social for me, um, especially during the week. I've got a few people that I run with pretty consistently and I always look forward to that. Um, on the weekends, I try to get a longer run in and, you know, for me, I, you know, I end up averaging about eight hours of running a week, give or take an hour on either side, depending on if I miss a day or if I get a longer run in than I suppose. So I'm I'm on a pretty regular routine, but I don't, you know, for someone who writes so many training plans, I, I'm i not following one right now. I don't have any races on my calendar either. I, you know, I've jumped in, I jumped in a trail half marathon earlier this year because it looked fun and I had some friends doing it. And I was like, why not? You know, i I've, you know, I've certainly been doing enough running to be able to handle that. And, I mean, once I race, kind of my natural instincts take over and I compete. And um, and I still love to compete, but, I mean, I probably I race less than six times a year now on, on average. Last year I raced a little more because we had a cross-country team in our area that I coach. And, you know, I jumped in to score some of those. And I'll probably do it this fall. But, I mean, so far this year I've raced a trail half marathon, um and that's it um i jumped in beta breakers for fun we ran as a centipede and we're in costumes and uh that was totally different for me but i had a blast um but i try to get out every day and it's again it's not for me it's not working toward a specific goal um at least right now it's it's more just for myself and for camaraderie and for clarity and that's not to say i i've half jokingly I've retired probably half a dozen times from competitive running and I always get sucked in cause I just, I can't stay away. Um, right now I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to run Boston in 2017. I ran it in 2015. It went well. Um, I'm not going to run any road marathons this year. I have a qualifier, so I need to decide in September whether or not I want to run. If, and if I decide to run, I'll put in a pretty focused training block for that. And, um, you know, the thing is, given what I've been through as an athlete, um, my even when I'm training now, it doesn't look anything like it used to when I was in college. I mean, my volume's way down for a marathon. You know, if I run, you know, it's hard to say, I'm mostly by minutes now, but I think mileage, it comes out to like 70 miles is a big week for me now. and And that doesn't happen all that often, but I'm pretty steady between you know 55 and 65 miles a week most weeks and that's just again that's not geared toward anything it's just like if i go out for an hour a day and at the pace that i run that's sort of what it comes sort of what it comes out to and um if i do decide to start training for races i'll start you know shifting the focus of some of those runs into more targeted workouts but it's way lower stress than it's ever been um but i you know i think i love it more than i've ever have um you know, I I feel really thankful for, to have running in my life and, and thankful for all the things that it's brought me and the people it's introduced me to and the opportunities that it's given me. And, um, I'm just grateful that I can do it. Um, I know, I know others who aren't as fortunate for one reason or another, they're injured or, you know, life is too busy and they can't get out and run. So I'm just thankful that I have the opportunity to get out on a you know, on a regular basis. And as long as I'm able to do that, I, I have no plans to stop. And if I feel like racing, I'll race. And if I don't, it's, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I miss it and I don't, but it's like, for me, it's like, if I can just get out and I can stay healthy, that's the most important thing. And, um, I'm kind of at that point now too, where I've gotten to know my body so well that if I feel like I'm on the brink of going over the edge, I just back way off and I don't think twice about it. Um, and you know, 10 years ago and certainly before that, I, you know, I would have just kept pushing through. And now I'm at a point where with my main goal being to get out the door every day and stay healthy, um, you know, I've, I've learned to keep things in check.
1: Yeah. It's cool. I mean, it sounds like you've could let it, you've let it evolve in time.
0: Yeah. It's totally evolved. It's, definitely.
1: And it's continuing to like, I yeah. feel like one year from now we could be sitting here and there'll be a new chapter to it maybe that you may not expect.
0: Yeah. I mean, just in the last two years, since I moved to the Bay area, I've really gotten into trail running and I've done some ultra distance runs and that wasn't something five years ago I would have told you I had any interest in. Um, but now I do. And it's just, you know, it's different and I'm learning and I'm you know, learning about myself and others, and training, and um, you know, again, brought me new opportunities. And um, you know, it's it's nice that having done this for more than half my life now, it's there's still some newness to it, and there's you know, new things that I'm excited about. And I don't know, I want to I want to be able to run for you know for as long as I'm alive. And um, I know that sounds so cheesy and kind of cliche, but um, you know, I I think I've been deep enough into the hole before to realize, like, what it would be like if I can't run. And I just know I'm a, you know, everything's better when I'm able to run. I'm, I'm just a, I'm a better husband. I'm a better friend. I'm a better coach. I'm a better person. I'm more productive. Um, you know, so for me, it's important that I always, like, I, f- I keep that balance and I find a way to keep it in my life
1: beautiful thank you so much for your time and i'm so happy you're passing through ben and we got to connect and i'm a huge fan of your writing and your work and i'm excited to see what your job (laughs) what you'll what you'll share when you will (laughs) yeah
0: no thank you and thank you for um thank you for having me on your show and, and the opportunity to speak with you today i appreciate it
1: i feel like mario and i could have talked for a lot longer He has so many stories, life experiences, and passions. And if you don't already subscribe to his newsletter, The Morning Shakeout, I highly recommend you do. It's one of my favorite parts of the week to open my inbox every Tuesday morning to Mario's email with analysis and insightful, entertaining commentary on all things running in life. You may have also heard Mario and I refer to the hashtag say two words that he mentions during the interview. But I've really been enjoying the challenge on Instagram of distilling my caption into just two words. So join us and reach out to Mario and I on Twitter or Instagram to let us know you tuned in and what moved you from the conversation. I know that thousands of people listen to this podcast, but until someone actually reaches out, I never know who's tuning in. So if you tune into Roo regularly and it provides you inspiration, please consider donating to Roo's Patreon page. Help support me bring all of you the highest quality podcasts every week, and in return, get to be part of a Roo community with insider access into the podcast and exclusive content. Visit patreon.com/slash running on to donate and know that any amount of support helps. Before I sign off for today, A quick ask that you've probably heard many times before, and it will take you less than two minutes, it's to leave a review of the podcast. You can do it right now from your phone, click on the reviews tab, and even a one-sentence review makes a world of difference. A huge thank you to all those who've already left reviews. I'm so grateful for your support, and know that I've read every single one of them. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running On Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day.